they wanted to do amongst themselves, and if there was any energy left over, then they might think about doing submission. And uh, the idea was to reverse that and to say, no, the church has mission as its number one priority and should be shaped in its internal life according to the needs and demands and shaping of that mission. The problem with that, as I discovered trying to think it through with colleagues in Durham, is that when you say, well, okay, we should be shaped according to people say, well, what is our mission? And then there's considerable confusion. And I found when I went to Durham in 2003, this talk is all about Durham, but these are quite relevant and germane, I mean, that there were basically two types of church at opposite ends of the spectrum in the diocese. And they weren't high church and low church, so we had plenty of that stuff as well. But at one end, there were people who thought that the whole mission of the church was to save souls to go to heaven, and that any attempt to make life better, more bearable, more beautiful in this world was a distraction from the aim of saving souls to go to heaven. And so uh, that was where they put their mission and their energy. And at the other end of the spectrum, oh yes, and when you talk to people like that and ask key questions like, so why did Jesus do all that interesting stuff, like um, having parties with the wrong sort of people and healing people and so on? Um, well, there isn't really a very good theological explanation for that, except that maybe it's a sort of illustration of how God wants to save souls or something. But at the other end of the spectrum, we had a lot of churches, and uh, there are many in America as well, who see Jesus in the Gospels going around uh, healing people, being kind to strangers and old ladies and small children and stray dogs and goodness knows who else. And uh, they say, that's, that's the Jesus we're following. And that's what we should be doing. Our mission is to find where there is pain and suffering and hurt in the world and to be there and to do what we can to improve it at every level, social, cultural, political. And then the question comes, well, Jesus did that for a maximum of about three years. What a pity he died so young. And the sort of sense of uh, complete disconnect between those who believe on the one hand that Jesus died to save souls to go to heaven, and those who believe that he came to show us how to make life a little more bearable for those at the bottom of the pile. And I found that it was my vision to try to interpret those two to one another, and to see that actually there was a larger whole into which they both fit in a sense, but which will then transform both. And it's about that larger whole that I want to speak this morning. Of course, these questions go back, not only through the last century, but back as far as the Reformation, with particular emphasis in the 18th and 19th centuries, when so much of European culture and indeed American culture was shaped the way it is today. We haven't got time to do that bit of church history, but just to say that in the 18th century, there was quite a swing from those at the beginning of the century who thought that the gospel of Jesus Christ was making the world a better and better place as more and more people came to believe in Jesus, to follow him, that quite soon it would all happen and the earth would be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And when George Frederick Handel wrote The Messiah um, at the end of the first half of the 18th century, it was full of that sense of triumph. The Hallelujah Chorus is an expression of what's going to happen when the gospel has done its work all around the world. But by the end of that century, with revolutions both here and in France, with all kinds of other social and cultural movements, the church tended to back off. Okay, there were reformers like Wilberforce and so on, but a lot of people in many different kinds of churches came to think 
that actually we would leave politics and the running of society to the politicians and the social workers, and that our job as church was to be sure that we were saying our prayers and getting things right and to wait for Jesus to come and sort out all the mess. And I have met many people throughout my life in ministry who have said when you say to them, uh, surely God isn't happy with the way things are in the world at the present. They've said, well, there's nothing we can do about that until Jesus comes back. So we just have to say our prayers and make sure, as it were, we're okay. So they won't put it quite like that. Now, to all of this, all of this confusion, I want to say something about the resurrection and the whole idea of heaven on earth. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven. And I find there are many, many Western Christians who never really figured out what that's all about. But for a first century Jew, it was fairly obvious because they had one massive, highly important cultural symbol, which we in the West don't think about like that, and that was the temple. And the point about the temple was that it was where heaven and earth actually met. It wasn't that when you went to the heaven, to the temple, it was as though you were in heaven. You were actually in heaven. That was the point of intersection, the place of overlap. So that that was where you really were in the presence of God. And they had all, all sorts of different ways of symbolizing that and flagging that up and making sense of it. And they also had another symbol which helped them understand how somehow things could happen at the moment which were a genuine anticipation of God's future. And that was the Sabbath. We in the West, again, think of the Sabbath in terms of, oh, the Jews used to keep the Sabbath on the seventh day as a sort of legalistic thing, and they had these lists of rules which you weren't allowed to do this or that or the other on the Sabbath, and then they got cross with Jesus because he seemed to break those rules and so on. That's simply a low-grade trivialization. The point of the Jewish Sabbath, as many, many rabbis and other Jewish teachers have taught, is that it's a moment within our own flow of time when God's ultimate promised future arrives briefly and mysteriously in the present time. And so you live for a brief moment as though you're in God's future, and in a sense, you really are. Jesus plugged right into both of those. He behaved as if he was the temple in person, but he behaved as if where he was, heaven and earth were coming together. It's a very dangerous thing to happen. And one of the reasons that he healed people on the Sabbath was that when he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, one of the things he meant was, we are now in permanent Sabbath mode. This is the time when God's future is arriving in the present. We find it terribly difficult in the West to get our, get our minds around ideas like this, but this would have been fairly common coin in Jesus' day. Because part of the point of the gospel, my friends, is not how do we get to be with God, but that God longs to be with us. And that image in Genesis 1 and 2 of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and then being upset that Adam and Eve seemed to be getting it wrong, that is then answered at the end of the book of Exodus by the divine glory coming to live in the tabernacle in the midst of the children of Israel, that that is itself a pointer to the fact that God claims the whole world as his own. So that the tabernacle and then the temple are foretastes, 
they are little microscopic signs of the new creation of heaven coming on earth. And when we read the Gospels, it's actually very clear in John's Gospel, all of this stuff that I've been saying, but the other Gospels as well, then we realize this is what they're trying to tell us. So that then after Jesus' death, when he is raised from the dead and pours out his spirit on his followers, one of the things we are meant to think, and one of the things the Acts of the Apostles is trying to tell us, is that with Jesus' risen body, heaven and earth are now joined together in a new way. The ascension isn't about Jesus leaving us behind and going off somewhere else. The ascension is rather about heaven and earth coming together in him. Jesus holding them together. And then the Spirit being poured out in Acts 2 on Jesus' followers is a way of saying, now, here, heaven and earth are being joined together. So, in Acts 1, we have Jesus' risen body joining heaven and earth together. In Acts 2, we have the breath of the Spirit joining heaven and earth together. Something new is happening. Something new has already happened. You see, part of the standoff between the two types of churches I mentioned before is a standoff in terms of when is, when is stuff going to happen, for which the shorthand phrase we use is eschatology. We theologians, like all other academic disciplines, love our ology words. And eschatology is about the end, but hang on, has the end happened in a sense already, or has it partly happened, or what? And the mission of the church takes place between the beginning of the end and the end of the end. And once you understand those two, and Paul tries to make it clear in 1 Corinthians 15, then you see how the mission will be itself shaped by hope so that then the church can be shaped by that mission. So what is the ultimate future that we are promised in the New Testament? It goes back constantly to the Old Testament, but brings it forward. So let's do a bit of both. In the Old Testament, we have these extraordinary promises of new heavens and new earth at the end of the book of Isaiah. But that is already symbolized in, as I've said, the, the, the promise of the temple. There's a wonderful example of this. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 72. I, I teased my colleagues in St. Andrews that I was going to retire at the age of 72 because that's my favorite psalm and it seems an appropriate moment to go. But actually, I think it would be a bit earlier than that. Um, <laughs> psalm 72 is about the good king and why we should pray for the good king and what the good king is going to do. And again and again, it's the, the king is to be celebrated because he brings God's justice to the poor and the widow and the disadvantaged, disadvantaged and the stranger and the orphan. It says it again and again. And at the end of that psalm, it says, Blessed be God forever, and may his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. Now, the main thing the king has to do in the Old Testament, it would seem for many pastors, is to build the temple. David plans the temple, Solomon builds it, Hezekiah cleans it up, Josiah does an even greater cleanup. After the exile, Zerubbabel is supposed to build it again, but he doesn't do a very, very good job. And then, at the time of Jesus, Herod the Great had been trying to rebuild and adorn the temple, precisely to legitimate himself as the king of the Jews. And why does the king build the temple? Why does anyone in the ancient world build a temple? So that the living presence of God may be there in the midst of the so here's how Psalm 72 works. 
The king builds the temple so that God may be present to his people. The king does justice for those who most desperately need it so that God's glory may fill the whole world. There's a sense of the temple as the sign and foretaste of the whole new creation. You see this again in Numbers 14. It's a fascinating passage when Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Israel to say, go and have a look and see how we can conquer this land. And when they come back, 10 of them say, oh, it's hopeless. We'll never do it. They're, they're as tall as giants and we're scared stiff. We just felt like grasshoppers in their presence. And only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, yeah, we should go and do it. God can give us victory here. But the 10 win the day. And so the people turn back. And God is furious. And he says, don't you realize that my glory will fill the whole earth? But you've denied even the fact that I want to take you into this land. The idea is that the promised land and the temple within it are to be signs and foretastes of that heaven on earth, which is God's will for his whole creation. So this is picked up by many classic passages in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, I already mentioned, where we find Paul saying in verses 20 to 28, uh, this remarkable passage about the Messiah has already been raised from the dead. This is something that has already happened. He is already reigning and ruling in the way appropriate for who he is, for the fact that he wins his victories through the cross and not through the normal human means. But then that looks on, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, to the time when God will be all in all. And we live in between the resurrection of Jesus and the all-in-allness of, of God in creation. And those two contextualize and shape who we are supposed to be and particularly what we are supposed to do. Because Paul says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed being death. In other words, where we are at the present is a time when Jesus is already reigning and when the church in the power of the Spirit is entrusted with the mission of new creation, of bringing in the present real signs of God's future to bear little Sabbath moments, if you like, little temple moments, to put it like that. And the church is conceived in the New Testament again and again as this puzzled, often frightened, but trying to be faithful little community, which is nevertheless bearing the living, powerful, active, world-healing presence of the living God within his creation. Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that, that, that the, 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 the sign of the gospel, if you like, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we have over-personalized that and we've transferred the idea of glory into going to heaven when you die, which is not the point at all. It's not where the New Testament is going with that. The idea is God will fill the whole earth with his glory. And at the moment, the living presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of his people is the actual sign and foretaste of that coming glory. And you say, well, churches I know, and present company accepted, of course, don't always seem to look like that. In my country, churches don't always seem to look like that. But that's in a sense part of the point, and we see that being worked out in the New Testament. 
when Paul is writing his letters and the others are writing theirs, because the church does get muddled and it doesn't always get it right. It does make big and bad mistakes, and we all do and we all have. Nevertheless, God is active and sovereign, and the victory that was won in the death and resurrection of Jesus is being implemented in all sorts of ways, in ways that often we don't see until we look more closely at what's actually going on, often in the places that the media and so on never choose to look. And so there's other great passages in the New Testament come into play. Revelation 21 and 22, which is the picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And the image there in 1 Corinthians is the image of a victory, a great battle, which God is going to win in Christ over all the dark forces. In Revelation, it's a picture of a wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And this sense of heaven and earth coming together then picks up where the whole Bible began in Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation of heaven and earth, and then as the climax of Genesis 1, the creation of man and woman in God's image. There's something there extremely profound, still, I think, to be worked out by churches and theologians in terms of how we understand the goodness of creation, the goodness of maleness and femaleness, and so on. But part of the whole point is that these are meant to be together, to work together, that heaven and earth are not to be separated. That is the platonic lie which has seduced so many in Western culture over the last few centuries, actually for longer than that as well. The idea that earth and our human bodies are really rather shabby old things and we can get rid of them and we can push off somewhere else. That is not the point. But if it's not the point for us, it's not the point for the world around either. And the world around is full of people who are in bad situations, who need to know that God, the Creator, wills to heal, restore, to transform, to change, to make things better in all kinds of ways, as we see Jesus doing again and again. And then probably the best known passage in the New Testament about the new creation is Romans chapter 8. I should be speaking about Romans chapter 8, and maybe one or two of you there, I'm not sure, on uh, Monday afternoon. That's tomorrow, then. Jeff Lang is holding me back from full awareness of what day is what. But in Romans 8, we have this extraordinary image of creation like a mother giving birth. And Paul talks about the birth pangs of the new creation and says the whole creation is groaning in labor pains at the moment. And we in the church are picking up that sense because we too groan because we feel out of joint with the way things are. And the answer is not, therefore we should escape this wicked world and go to a place of pure spiritual soul. The answer is for Paul that we are there and are sharing the sufferings of the Messiah, the sufferings of Jesus. And this comes to its quintessential form, he says, in our prayer life. Our prayer life, but often we don't know what to do. We don't know what we're supposed to be praying for. But we stay at the place of pain. We identify with the world around in its groaning. And my friends, you know and I know there's a huge amount of groaning in the world right now in all sorts of different levels. And the task of the church is not to escape it and say, oh, well, thank goodness we're Christians, so we don't have to worry about that, but to remain in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. Because, says Paul, when that happens, 
the Holy Spirit is actually praying within us with inarticulate groanings and God the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit and then he says we are thereby being shaped according to the image of the Son. This is a Trinitarian model of the mission of the church in the middle of the world that is in pain. God the Father hearing the prayer of the Spirit that arises from the church and thereby forming us in our, even in our unknowing in the pattern of Christ. I sometimes think that Romans 8 is the place in Paul where he comes closest to an implicit exegesis of what in Matthew and Mark Jesus shouts out on the cross, my God, why did you abandon me? It's one of the strangest and darkest moments in the New Testament. And I think that when Paul is talking about the, the prayer of unknowing, as it were, I think he is maybe channeling some similar idea. But this is somehow at the heart of our mission. This is who we have to be for the world. And so those great themes that swirl around us in, in all sorts of ways in our world come home to roost for us in our mission. I've written about these elsewhere, here and there. In my book, Simply Christian, I outline four of them, uh, justice, spirituality, relationships, and beauty. And in a book of mine, which is coming out fairly soon, I've added three more, freedom, truth, and power. We all know these things matter. You know, nobody wants to speak against freedom, or against justice, or against beauty but they're evanescent, they slip through our fingers, we can't quite grasp them, and that's part of the point. We live in a world where justice is denied, where beauty gets trampled on, where truth turns into fake news, and so on and so on. And part of the story of the gospel is how Jesus himself came to that place. Think of the story of his crucifixion, where justice is denied, where friendship is trampled on, where, where love is spurned, where spirituality seems to go dark, uh, and so on, and Pilate sneering, what is truth? Somehow Jesus came to the place where all these things that we know are important were being trampled on. He took the full force of that on himself, and then in the resurrection, you see this so clearly in John's Gospel particularly, Jesus launched the world of new creation. There is a reason why John 20 verse 1 begins with the words, on the first day of the week. John does nothing by accident, and he does it again in verse 19, the evening of that day, the first day of the, of the week. In other words, this is new creation. That's why it's so surprising and startling that the disciples don't know what to do about it. The resurrection of Jesus launches the new world. Jesus breathes on his followers, his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, John 19, John 20, 19 to 25. And he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That is the heart of the Christian mission, to be for the world, in the power of the Spirit, what Jesus was for Israel. And because of the resurrection, this is not whistling in the dark. This is not saying, well, let's just improve a few little things here and there, but basically we're off to heaven one day or Jesus will come back or something. No, this has actually begun with the resurrection. This is part of the point of the bodily resurrection. This is heaven on earth already. It disrupts the narratives of our culture. One of the reasons people find it difficult to believe in the resurrection in this moment in our culture is because we have been told till we're blue in the face the modern world, which started supposedly in the 18th or early 19th century, 
has disproved all sorts of things that we used to believe and has got us to a place where we could leave all that old stuff behind. In other words, that history turned its real corner, perhaps in the 1770s. Didn't you have an interesting event in the 1770s? That's how we look at the number we live in the modern world. My friends, world history turned its one and only major corner when Jesus of Nazareth came out of the two mornings to the morning. And we as Christians are called to live in the light of that, that event, that fact, that world-shaping new reality. And by the power of the Spirit, to be resurrection people for the world. Of course that means being ourselves challenged, humbled, brought to our knees, turned into people who somehow stumblingly learn how to pray, people who are able to bring God's love to the world in the power of the Spirit. And so we are looking forward to the time when God will complete at the last what he did in and for Jesus at Easter. And that is indeed what Paul is saying in Romans 8. And out of that vision grows the New Testament's theology of the church. We are to be a community shaped by mission as our mission is shaped by that eschatology, that vision of hope. So we are to be people of justice for the world. We are to be people who celebrate and enhance beauty in and for the world. We are to be people who tell the truth and learn how to do that, which is very difficult, harder than you might think. We are to be people of spirituality ourselves and greet people in the world who say, as Jason was saying last night, something about, oh, well, we are very spiritual, but we're not particularly religious, with the news that actually the living presence of Jesus transcends those rather odd modern words, and so on and so on. We are to be people who bring these agendas into the world and do so cheerfully. We do it in our own common life together as a community, which is hard. All churches find it hard from time to time. When you hit those moments, it doesn't mean you've got something horribly wrong. You may have done, but that's not the point. It means that you're a normal Christian community needing to depend on the love and grace and wisdom of God. But we are to be communities shaped by a mission which is itself shaped by that vision of hope. And as such, last point, we are thereby, as Paul says in Romans 8.29, conformed to the image of the Son. That image language is really, really important in Paul. He comes back to it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, when he talks about being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. Think back to Genesis 1. Humans made in God's image. That doesn't just mean there's something about humans which is a bit like God. That may be so, but that's not the point. It's a temple picture again. The image is an angled mirror, reflecting God into the world and reflecting the praises of the world back to God. The ancient Jewish phrase for that is the royal priesthood, to be the priests of creation, summing up the praise of creation and presenting it before God. That's what the church is doing all the time. According to Revelation 4 and 5, it's what's going on in the heavenly dimension all the time, and we are privileged to join in with that. But then, reflecting God out into the world, the God of unutterable, generous, crazy, creative love, the God who longs to dwell in our midst, and already dwells in our midst by the Spirit, 
and will one day be all in all. Now, I've said quite a lot this morning as well, because when you ask someone like me to address the last bit of like this, but that's probably enough. The moment you've got maybe 20 minutes to have some Q&A, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so over to you.